The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. The headlines this hour, news of a China-U.S. phase one trade deal powering a global rally as Wall Street hits fresh records and Asian stocks scale 17-month highs. Shares in Boeing fall as the plane maker halts production of its 737 MAX jet in the wake of two fatal crashes after U.S. regulators dash hopes of the plane returning to skies before 2020. Elsewhere, the pound stumbles against the dollar. On reports, the British government will move to block an extension of the Brexit transition period in a bid to fast-track a trade deal with the EU. The Bank of England says Britain's financial system has enough quality capital to weather a crisis more severe than 2008, as all seven major lenders pass the stress tests. This is all throwing in the tail on rational market behavior, throwing in the tail on valuations, because that's pretty much what Jeffrey, Karen and myself are hearing at the moment. People are saying, look, don't worry about the fundamentals. It's just going up. People like what they're seeing on the political front, on both sides of the Atlantic, perhaps on both sides of the Pacific. And actually, it's one of those times when you don't need to think too hard about it. You just need to own it. Now, whether that's true or not remains to be seen. But that certainly was the view of our guest host yesterday, who's saying uh, all the tailwinds are there. uh, And actually, there is a fair wind set for these markets at the moment. And again, we saw across the board uh, big gains. We saw the consumer staples sector hitting a new uh, record level as well. We also saw the NASDAQ being driven higher as well. Very interesting numbers if you look at the technology sector and the subsectors, including semiconductors uh, in the last 24 hours as well, because the semiconductors, again, uh, really pushing the NASDAQ to an outperformance on those broader markets. I did a little bit of work on this one and looked at the semiconductor ETF, SMH, which yesterday hit a new intraday all-time high yet again. What do you think SMH is up year to date, ladies and gentlemen? Yeah, no more. What's that? Yeah, shout it, tell you a bit louder. That's right, 62%. 62% year to date. There are people who own stocks all their lives who don't make 62%. So isn't that extraordinary? No wonder some of these active fund managers are just throwing in the towel. Some of these hedge funds are just having ignominious failure to match benchmark. Because when you've got indices moving up and ETFs moving up by 62% year to date, it's one example that is quite extraordinary. Interestingly enough, uh, that is the best year since 2003 when the SMH gained 87%. Look at the broader tech sector as well. Uh, Microsoft was up six tenths of one percent. Netflix, interesting, giving us more information on their international expansion. Uh, Of course, there are questions about customer acquisition costs and revenue per user. But the stock moving up one point nine percent in session yesterday, as indeed was Facebook. Apple, very interesting period of the year for all of these players. Of course, we're between devices on the iPhone front as well. But Apple moving to two hundred and eighty dollars. Amazon. A huge part of the year for them as well. 1,769.5 of 1% higher. Asian indices also moving to multi-month highs as well. The Hang Seng putting some of its political woes aside and moving up 1.4%. The Shanghai Composite 
both moving with the Shenzhen Composite as well, up 1.5. Okay, European markets had a very good day yesterday. UK equities having a, a storming rally. We took 7,500 there, 7,525, uh, and a Kakarant, just a whisper away from 6,000. Right, Roche, Karen, good morning. Uh, good morning. We have uh, some news crossing from the pharmaceutical company as it goes after Spark Therapeutics. This is a gene therapy company. And uh, news flow in the last uh, 24 hours or so, it has uh, crossed some of the regulatory hurdles. UK Competition and Markets Authority and also FTC granting unconditional approval to allow this to proceed. So uh, Roche has now also pushed ahead with purchasing shares in a tender offer for Spark Therapeutics. This uh, seems to just mark a little bit of further progress. The pricing of this, one fourteen fifty US dollars per share in cash. So the tender offer expiring sixteenth uh, of December, five pm New York City time, and was not extended. Uh, so uh, it uh, marks a further progression of takeovers and acquisitions in the pharmaceutical space, of which we have seen many over the course of twenty eighteen. Uh, Boeing is freezing production of the 737 MAX in the company's biggest shutdown for more than two decades. It comes after the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration refused to clear the planes for flight before 2020. Boeing says the temporary suspension will start in January, but some 12,000 employees will keep their jobs as the plane maker focuses on delivering stored aircraft. Shares in Boeing closed down 4% and fell further in the after-hours session. News of the halt also impacted shares in Spirit Aerosystems, which is Boeing's biggest supplier. Um, a sense of inevitability, I guess, about the fact that we um, are still not uh, seeing the FAA uh, approve this aircraft uh, before the end of the year here. As I understand it from the articles I've been reading on it, 400 aircraft still sit in storage, 400 of the newly delivered aircraft sit in storage. The customers are not paying for deliveries because they won't until they get approval for the aircraft. Um, it makes sense, I guess, from a cash flow perspective for Boeing to take this, this decision. It's been a dramatic uh, cycle, I think, for some of these aircraft makers. Record times uh, in terms of production of aircraft because you've had this wonderful era where a lot of people want to travel, the millennials in particular, going after experiential spending. So it's set the scene for a lot of budget um, travel, which has been great for the airline space. And as a result, you've got a backload of deliveries. So if you look at the, the share price action, you've actually had Boeing stock still rise 1% odd over the course of 2019, despite all of the issues. In a typical scenario like this, you'll probably see a manufacturer like this have an absolute tanking in the share price. By comparison, though, Airbus stock's actually been up 53%. So it tells you how much headroom they've missed out on with all of these execution issues now around uh, this aircraft that they've had to effectively suspend. So the 737 MAX, you'd say, what is the future of this program? And uh, what does 2020 hold, whether regulators approve it and whether the customers still, still sign up for it and what the compensation is for it? Because if you think of one of the major customers, they've also had some settlement over the amount of money paid out because of some of the delays. So I would say uh, perhaps, perhaps some of the best of it might have been over for rivals in the space, Boeing and Airbus, and maybe Boeing just missed out on the best of it. Um, yeah, I, again, I, I was looking at similar kind of numbers to yourself. I don't really have much to add. Um, unbelievable to have one tragedy because of something that was avoidable. Having two, potentially, uh, is, and obviously, I know it's very legalistic, so there's only limited amount you want to say on that front, but you know, losing 346 people uh, through what was an error if you know, the process, the manufacturing, whichever way, the software, uh, is it, unbelievably tragic. The fact, as you say, that they are year-to-day up a percent, 
uh, where their rival has outperformed them by 52.5%. That speaks volumes to me as well. What is also very interesting is despite the fact that Airbus has rallied 54% in 2019, do you know, it still trades at a discount to Boeing. And I think that's extraordinary. It still trades at a discount to Boeing, trades at 17.5 times forward as opposed to Boeing that trades at 19 times forward. It's extraordinary, isn't it? The One European thing I will say, just my only final point is these two enormous, some say state-sponsored, and you know, if, you are, if you're throwing brickbacks on either side of Atlantic mm. uh, Airlines, are going to have a new rival in the next decade. We're at the end of this decade, and the Chinese are building... And let's face it, the whole IP issue and technological transfer has been a very big issue. The Chinese are building uh, what they think will be their version of this as well. So I'm very interested to see who wins all these contracts uh, in the high growth areas in the next decade. Yeah, just on the, um, uh, I just wanted to tie together a couple of things here. One is um, what you did at the wall and one is this story because um, it seems to me that part of the reason why you uh, can make that point about how they're trading and that discount, it seems to me as there is an expectation as we run into next year that there will be slowing sales for both of these companies. And um, just to knit this together with the fund manager survey that was uh, recently done, um, I think it was Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, where they talked about 90% of fund managers are still penciling in the end of the cycle for the global economy. So even as they think about risk running into next year, and even as Michael Hartner over at um, uh, BOML uh, has, has said that there is the potential for a Q1 melt-up here. I think what you're seeing in the capital goods space and particularly around the airline sector here is obviously there are these unique difficulties that both of these companies are facing at this point. The tax issue and obviously uh, what's going on with the 737 MAX. But it is interesting that here we are talking again about markets rallying into the end of the year, sentiment being strong, the prospects for a melt-up. But the overlying, uh, overlying message uh, uh, on all of that is that we still think we're at the end of a business cycle here. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that's keeping this juiced is the central banks cutting uh, interest rates at this point And the fact that we are talking a lot about governments providing some fiscal stimulus as we come into next year because the central banks may be tapped out. I take your point about the macro, but also single factors like disruption and climate change. If you think about this industry, there's been all sorts of concerns throughout millennials about how much travel, air travel they're doing. You've seen the airlines trying to uh, move pretty quickly to yeah, this is the same millennials you emissions. said five minutes ago are now having experimental travel. Exactly, but now you've come so to a circle. So that's the same hypocrisy I see when <laughs> I see them all buying £5 t-shirts in uh, West End stores. So just, just confirm to me what this, <clears throat> perhaps the most hypocritical of generations yet, because I know our, our, our generation gets it. So, so they are doing more travelling or they're feeling more environmentally conscious about so it? So this is the impressionable thing that you've also witnessed in the fashion industry where you've got this stampede into a direction that is fast fashion and a lot of travel and then a stampede in the opposite direction to perhaps I should not travel as much because of the impact on the environment and maybe I won't consume as much fast fashion because of sustainability issues. And I think that has a fairly dramatic impact if you start to see the drop in consumption. The question is whether the airline space can We can't all afford to fly in a crew to take us on a catamaran across the Atlantic, can we, every time we want to go somewhere? Well, we don't have the time, do we? Um, <laughs> well, let's face it. If, if we're going to price these air tickets uh, to take on board the carbon tax, I think, what was it, uh, Peter Tugut said yesterday, we should be paying £500 or sort of $650, $700 per ticket every time just to sit in the cheap seats. So there, you know, if we want to talk about who's going to be bearing the costs of this tax to get to the world that we keep talking about, 
then it's going to be all of us. Right. And we haven't even mentioned space travel, the potential next disruptor to travel. In other news, uh, top Trump, uh, Trump economic advisor Larry Kudlow has hit back at suggestions the phase one US-China trade deal is still not a certainty. That's amid a lack of public consensus from the two sides on key logistical details. Let's get out to Eunice for more in Beijing. Uh, Eunice, there are many already questioning out there on the markets as to whether the rally is now done for 2019 based on the lack of detail we're really getting through from a phase one trade deal. I know we'll pen to paper. What are you hearing on the actual detail at this point? Well, not a whole lot. I mean, it's just and that's really the, the big problem um, and the, the reason why the Trump administration and in particular the White House economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, um, have been really trying to hard sell the benefits of this phase one trade deal. In fact, Kudlow overnight had uh, said that any concerns about the certainty of this agreement um, are misplaced. This is what he said. Let me make no mistake about it. The, the deal is done. The deal is completed. Uh, I was out and about last Friday. Some people were suggesting this is not true. The deal is absolutely completed. And it's that lack of a completed text uh, that would um, be published, uh, that which is, has been uh, raising a lot of speculation that this deal could still unravel over issues such as agricultural purchases. The Chinese uh, still have not uh, mentioned any hard targets or numbers that they're going to be doing um, any uh, major buying. Uh, the U.S., though, has uh, continued to insist that China is going to increase its purchases of U.S. goods by $200 billion over the next two years. This is what Kudlow said. We are going to double, we are going to double U.S. exports. The positive effects on economic growth in this country cannot be exaggerated. That's why I keep calling this growth year. And that's why I think in, in addition to, to lowering the tempers and, and putting some more certainty into it, I think you're going to get a very good business uh, year out of this. Yes. And Chinese trade experts who I speak to here have said that the government um, is uh, um, not really willing to publicly acknowledge any hard figures because it could potentially lead to a backlash um, at home. Uh, but most people do think that the government and the negotiators probably did agree to some sort of target, a pretty high number, although uh, they also tell me that uh, they believe that this is more of a soft target so that uh, if the Chinese are seen, or at least the Chinese are betting that if they're seen as buying a lot of purchases uh, from the United States, that the U.S. would find that acceptable. Eunice, lovely. Thank you very much indeed for that. Right. That's brilliant. Well, that's one of the key factors underlying the markets, the optimism um, towards the trade deal and what that's leading uh, the markets to do. Chris Bennett is Director of Index Investment Strategy, S&P, Dow Jones Indices. Good morning to you, Chris. Uh, look, we're going to look at your decade in review uh, a little bit later on as well. But I mean, I mentioned there that the trade conversation, we seem to rally every time that Mr. Cudlow, our former colleague, says we're really, really nearly there. Now we understand we are there, but we haven't seen the 86 pages of details as well. Can the market still rally on the same story? Good morning to you, sir. <laughs> Well, good morning. I've been asking the same question for about the last year. Um, <laughs> it seems like every time there is a positive story on trade, you have seen a market rally. Um, it's so clever, isn't it? Mr. Lighthizer, <laughs> Mr. Mnuchin, the president himself, and Mr. Cudlow keep saying we're nearly there. And boom, the market falls for it every single time. <laughs> and I think as with most things, the devil will be in the details. Um, but so far, it does seem like the market finds a way to rally every time there is positive news on the trade front. 
Yeah. Why do you think we're seeing so much volume at this point? I mean, we're trading on the effect of the same news. And going up to the end of the year, we've had extraordinary year-to-date returns, yet mm-hmm. on volume, the last few trading sessions, we've seen a lot of transactions take place. Well, you have a number of people moving in and out of positions, and there may be some degree of window dressing going towards the end of the year as people think about how they want to close the year out. Um, but most of the thing, I think to the point, there's been a degree of trading on news flow that we've seen throughout the year that's been fairly, it's been fairly interesting to watch. And to that point, whether or not there's still a degree of um, room to run there will be interesting to watch. You say trading in and out of positions, but I see the same usual suspects going up <laughs> in technology, for instance. Yeah. Very strong performance there. Uh, healthcare has picked up at any given time. Consumer discretionary also mm-hmm. uh, part of the portfolio. So, so what are people trading in and out of in this window dressing moment? Well, it seems to your point about uh, chasing sort of things that have been high momentum this year. So looking at information technology, looking at different opportunities there. And at the same time, there are probably some areas where you kind of want to end the year in a, a position to be in that's attractive um, for closing the year out. But I don't understand what's going on here. Oh, well, I do understand what's going on. They're just buying everything they can inside. But when I mentioned that um, SMH, semiconductor, earlier on as well, I mean, the market and the economy were seen in finer fettle a year ago. Now, as you were saying earlier, Jeff, everyone's talking about the end of cycle. And yet semiconductors are apparently worth 64% more than they were a year ago. Mm-hmm. I don't actually understand that in terms of fundamentals. Well, I think... I think you have to think about it in terms of where we are today versus where we were a year ago. A year ago, we were entering into a bit of a challenging position um, from we were a market perspective. Running into a scenario a year ago where the central bank of the biggest economy in the world, pretty much, uh, thought things were okay to be raising rates still. So actually, <laughs> because people thought, let's just dissect that. Mm-hmm. People thought things were good enough to have a high level of interest rates because maybe there was a bit of inflation creaking in. Maybe the economy was doing well enough. Say, now we don't think the economy is doing as well, and hence mm-hmm. the assets are worth sixty-four percent more. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think that, you know, from a from a central banking perspective, obviously there was a, a change of direction there from where we were a year ago. Um, and Chairman Powell and the Federal Reserve took a step back and said, maybe that prob- maybe that wasn't the right direction to go. Maybe we'll sort of reassess this in a little while. Um, but to your point, yeah, the market has rallied this year significantly. Um, we've seen a significant jump. And at the same time, there's broader questions around what's going to happen with global growth. Where do we go from here? What's going to drive this continued rally going forward? Uh, well, let's talk about buybacks because uh, you note the um, uh, $13 trillion of uh, US uh, buyback support uh, that's come from both dividends and stock buybacks at this point. Um, what is the capacity for those companies to continue the run rate that we've seen on this? Well, whether or not to be able to continue the rate that we've seen historically is still yet to be seen. Um, what we have seen over the last decade or so is a significant amount of cash returned to shareholders. So we're looking at around, I think, $13 trillion, um, in cash and from S&P 500 companies returned to shareholders via dividends and buybacks. Um, it's been just a general period of companies giving cash back to people who own their stock. Uh, and obviously, uh, I think as we pointed out, um, higher debt has helped this market. Lower interest rates have helped this market. Mm-hmm. What is the prospect here that we can continue to see rates come down? Because that is a risk, isn't it, for 2020 here, that we could start to see the market turn a little bit higher on rates as people get concerned about the ability of this equity market and the risk on trade to continue delivering. 
I think that's going to be one of the bigger stories going into 2020 is where we see rates go. So the question is, how active do central banks want to remain in the market? Do they take a step back and say, should we be putting in as much money as we have been? Do we want to keep being as actively involved? And obviously, the end of last year, we, as your colleague brought up earlier, the U.S. central banks was taking a step back and saying, should we raise interest rates? Uh, now today, we're looking at what's going to happen in the next year and seeing how rates will change. Well, it's in, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Both the ECB and the Fed are in the middle of reviews of monetary policy and how it operates at the moment. So clearly that's, as you say, going to be one of those big stories for 2020. Stay with us. We'll come back and we'll we'll talk a little bit about the decade in review. The US economic expansion has defied expectations over the past 10 years. So we'll talk a little bit more about where the S&P 500 is set to end the decade next. And we're podcasting. If you just can't get enough of Scorebox, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Welcome back. 126 months of economic expansion. Uh, I don't know what that is. Yeah, that's been the story. I knew this, actually. The record-breaking U.S. stock market rally we've seen since the cycle started in June 2009. Wow. Now, during the past decade, the S&P rose at a compound annual rate of 13%. What were hedge fund returns compound over that period? What? Not 13%? I can't believe it. Master of the universe. Anyway, it's on track to close out the last 10 years with a total return, wait for it, 243%. Now, such an economic expansion would have been hard to predict uh, then in the wake of the global financial crisis. Central bankers feared, I beg pardon, featured uh, to the fore of the decades bull market. They towed the line of recession several times, uh, expanded the traditional notion of monetary policy tools and famously did whatever it takes to emerge from the global crash. Chris Bennett's still with us from S&P, Dow Jones indices as well. Um, I was being a bit sarcastic. It's very naughty of me. I do this very often when talking about active traders of any description, not managing to beat the market in any market, in any market, let alone one that's just gone up in a straight line as well. <laughs> Has this 10-year rally been the death of active fund managers in many ways? Well, I don't know if it's been the death, but it certainly hasn't helped. Should it have been the death? <laughs> I think it's forced the active, the active environment to change. I mean, I think it's forcing the world to think about different ways of looking at the active-passive debate. I think, obviously, the numbers, the numbers as you mentioned, are, are pretty stark. Um, mm. It's been a significantly challenging decade for active managers, um, and it, it doesn't look like things are changing. Can I ask you, uh, they, they've merged... They've cut their fees. Uh, they've tried to bulk up. They've done all kinds of things as well. Have they stopped lying about the closet indexation? 
I think that's still another broader debate around yeah. how close you're playing to the index to that think? point. Um, well, we're talking about the absolute. We can't get yeah. sued here because we're talking about an industry. You can only get sued by individual companies, just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's, it's one of those it's one of those challenges that active managers and closet indexers are going to have going forward is having and to... For our viewers, this is people who pretend they're active, but actually a large bulk of their portfolio never really changes and just mirrors what's going on in the underlying index. Yeah, I mean, there's a friendly way to say it. You can say that I have low tracking error. Um, there are different... <laughs> <laughs> is that one of their lovely catchphrases? Um, but the, you're right. The reality is that the data doesn't lie. Um, and the fact is that active managers, almost irrespective of region, almost irrespective of area, have struggled to outperform their benchmarks. And I think it's one of those trends that we've seen in growing. And obviously, working for an index provider, we, we like to see this. But at the same time, it's, it's a benefit for people, for investors, to look at passive options and think, is there a better lower cost opportunity for me? And to just finally, because the guys are desperate to get in, is there a massive trap for our viewers one of these days when the the ETF stroke passive um, rooster comes home or the chickens come home to roost on this one as well because of the lack of liquidity in a lot of these products? No, I, I don't think we're there yet. I think ETFs, if you, if you take a step back and think about where ETFs are in the market or how big they are in the market, ETFs still only represent, even in the United States, only 6% of equity holdings. So it's still, they're still not large enough yet to where I think we need to start thinking about that. Granted, there are a number of people looking into those issues, but again, there's still only 6% of the ETF of the equity market in the United States. And that's the biggest area of adoption with ETFs. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.